Good evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. Co-host Laura is tied up tonight, um, but we'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their support and bringing you our weekly Q&A. Tonight, we're fortunate enough to be speaking to Pat Stewart from Operant Canine and the Canine Paradigm. Uh, Pat will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question of the night and able to eat a bag of Enduro, high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Obviously, I haven't said that enough times. How you going, Pat? Hey, mate. Thanks for having me. Nah, thanks for having us, mate. How was your day? Good. Big day. I uh, took on a new premises today, getting all moved in, setting up. It's been a great day. Beautiful, mate. What are, what are your plans there, Pat? Mate, it's actually, um, it's not just a dog training facility. It's going to be more of a, uh, like a studio. I've got it in my head that I want to make a new online course. And so this, um, this premises is going to sort of double as a place where I train, but then also like a dedicated space to film and put together a new online course that, um, you know, my current online course is just, it was COVID and I had a bunch of videos like everybody else. And so I put them together and called it an online course and that's been great. And people have been really supportive and it's gotten a lot of good feedback, but I want to take it more seriously and make something a bit more complete and a bit more structured and something that actually is designed to educate people like, you know, from start to finish rather than just like, Hey, here's all the content that I have. Um, so yeah, that's the plan that that started work on that today. Ah, beautiful. Congratulations, mate. I'm, uh, I'm Thanks, sure you mate. succeed in that. Thank so you. for the people out there that know, don't know Pat Stewart, mate, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, mate. So my name's Pat. I'm a dog trainer. I, um, I, have been doing it full time professionally for about eight years. I was in the army for 12 and a half years before that. I was at two commando regiment, um, pretty much straight out of school, joined the army and went, uh, I was part of the pilot program, what they called the direct entry to special forces. And so I did that and got in there and did a bunch of deployments sort of all around the world. And then, uh, along the way sort of took up dogs as a bit of a hobby and a passion. And then, uh, towards the back end of my military career was sort of, I was somewhat involved with the working dog program within my unit. We we're kind of late to bring in dogs. Um, and then I took a pretty decent injury sort of at the back end of my career there. And so when it was time to get out, I decided to do dogs full time. So I've been doing that ever since, um, within the dog space, I sort of work, I, you know, I started out, uh, in pets, like everybody does sort of when you come onto it. And then, um, as sort of luck and, uh, fortune favored me, a few people, I had started a, a podcast with a good friend of mine, Glenn Cook called the canine paradigm. And that sort of gave access people to me and my knowledge and stuff. And so now I'm quite lucky. I don't deal so much in pets. It's more, um, I deal in people who are training dogs for a purpose and that that's pretty broad spectrum. I, you know, I enjoy bite sports and police and military type work. I um, prep those kind of dogs quite a bit, but the coaching within that, uh, dog training space uh, is not really limited to that. It's pretty broad. It's basically anybody who thinks that my knowledge can maybe plug a gap in theirs, uh, and help them be more successful with their dog. Uh, awesome. And can you talk about your time in the army at all? Yeah, there? totally. Yeah. I mean, probably. What do you want to know? <laughs> no, no, they're cool because you were a sniper, right? Uh, mate, so I, uh, my last job was I was the sniper platoon sergeant. Um, uh, but I, so like sniping was, it, it's kind of weird. It, it wasn't my thing being a sniper. I ran the sniper cell, um, yep. but it wasn't my sort of dedicated. I'm not, so yes, yep. like I, 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 yes, I'm a sniper, but I'm not, I'm not like a, sniper guy it's not my area of specialty yeah. i was in charge of the snipers but obviously that's someone that has to control emotion and regulate breathing and whatnot mm -hmm. so mate, how did your time in that like how did it, how does that make you a better handler and why 
Um, mate, I think everything I did in the army, uh, especially within that unit. So, um, that unit is a, a, you know, it's, it's pretty selective. You get 160 odd guys will turn up to a selection course and, you know, 20 or 30 will, uh, finish and, you know, 15 to 20 will actually become commandos. Um, so it, it the, the barrier to entry is pretty high. Um, and my time sort of within that space generally, um, you know, certainly did prepare me for life with dogs. I think the main thing I learned is patience, to be honest, like yeah. patience is a huge part of it. It's, um, it, 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 you know, you can't rush things that just take time. Time takes time. And that's one of the main things that I think that I carry over from the army as well as, um, you know, sort of, uh, a professionalism that, that doesn't go away when people aren't watching, you know, it's the yeah. doing the right thing when nobody else is going to know, except for you. I think that's been one of the main things that's really helped me out with, with the dog career. So structure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just carrying that into whatever you do, like it, mm. you, are you a pretty methodical kind of guy? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like a bit, you know, maybe problematically at times. Um, but yeah, for sure. And I think my issue is like, I, not my issue, but one of the things certainly of my personality is that I, um, kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. So like I get, I definitely have some like obsessive compulsive tendencies. Um, and once I set a goal, it's kind of, it's pretty hard to derail me from that goal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got an objective in mind. You just, you know, and you bring that into not just what, um, you do, but also in what you want to achieve for your particular dog at the time. Yeah, totally. I mean, like to an extent, right. So like, I, I, I one of the things I constantly kind of find myself saying to police and military do- handlers is, you know, this dog doesn't know he's in the army. This dog doesn't know he's a cop. And so, you know, you have to work within the capability of the dog, the interests of the dog, the drives of the dog, all that kind of stuff. But for sure, I want to set a standard and, you know, have the dog work towards that or have me help the dog work towards that or the handler or whatever, for sure. It's funny you meant, you mentioned, because I know you don't know a lot of, like, have had a lot of exposure to stock work. Mm-hmm. We had a, a bloke on, actually, if you love a yarn, Dan Milo. Dan mm-hmm. Matthews, Milo, fantastic bloke. And um, we have classes and what we can do, which I'm sure you do in your, in your own sport. Mm-hmm. And um, he entered one of his dogs, which was a maiden dog, into like an open once. And a okay. bloke goes, why are you doing that for? Like, you know, it's open. And he goes, Shh, I haven't told the dog that he's not an open dog. Like, <laughs> he can still have a crack. And I yeah, think he ended yeah. up going good. So 100%. And I suppose that comes back to putting human values on a dog too, right? Totally, yeah, for sure. And I think that's one of the things like um, – yeah, we can hold ourselves to a high standard discipline and stuff like that. And you can know like me and this dog are going to achieve X, Y, Z and the repercussions of not doing that are whatever. Um, but you can't put that on the dog. You can't. And, and I think that the people who like, they can't understand that for starters, but also like, that's not helpful that they're, they're, they're just acting on impulses. They're doing the training They're they're, they're performing the tasks that we've shown them within the capability that they can understand it. Um, all those sorts of things have to come into play. And I think when people try and hold the dog to a standard, it, it really, you know, you got meant it's yourself, you as the handler and the trainer are the ones that need to be held to a standard. The dogs just do what the dogs do. And it's up to us to communicate to them what we want them to do and have them understand it. I don't know said they're not purposely being pricks, right? <laughs> well, sometimes it can feel that way. That's for sure. <laughs> it, it, it can be, it can be, mate. Speak, speaking of like, do you remember your first dog? Um, my first ever dog that I have. First ever dog, yeah. Yeah, I think actually uh, one of my first ever memories is uh, I'm not sure whether I'm making this up, 
because there's a photo of it, but I can remember, <laughs> I kind of vaguely remember the photo being taken of me and like the dog we had when I was a kid, when I was a really young baby. And I, like I was probably two and a half when the photo was taken and like I've got the yeah. photo and I vaguely remember it taking it. So yeah, I, or I'm making that up. I saw the photo and have put myself into that position. <laughs> what, what about working dog, mate? Who, who was your first working dog? Mate, my first ever, I my first ever Mallee that I had. So we had Border Collies growing up. And then when I was in the army, we had this kind of mongrel Border Collie that was really my wife's dog because I was, I was gone so much. Um, and after I was exposed to a military working dog overseas, like I was um, fortunate or unfortunate enough to uh, be embedded with a coalition force that had a working dog a military working dog that um, took a pretty serious bite. It, it was still to this day, probably the, the, the most significant live bite I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and it was the first I'd ever seen. And so I, I immediately got home from that deployment and was like, Oh, I got to get one of these. I, I need one of these dogs. Um, and you know, it was a baptism by fire. I had no idea what I was doing in reality. And I had a really, really, he was a really dangerous dog, like really, really dangerous. And, and, and it took me a little while to really understand why and understand how he got to that point. And there was a lot of bad training involved because he was an adult dog when I got him. Um, there was a lot into that, but yeah, mate, I'll never forget that dog. That's, that was a, that was a, that was baptism by fire. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How old, you mentioned he was an old dog. How old was that particular dog? Uh, he was about 14 months when I got him roughly, I think yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah, that's what he seemed like. And I, I, I wanted a puppy like. What happened was I, I sort of had this experience overseas with a working dog and just was enamored by it and just absolutely was obsessed. I wanted to get into it. And my, my dog was this old, I think he was like 15 at the time and he could barely walk and, you know, he was, he was on the way out. So all my interest in dogs and my, my training of dogs was theoretical. Like it was a hundred percent. I'm yeah. reading books. I'm watching videos. This is before the internet was um, what it is now. So the access to information wasn't the same. There was still plenty of information, right? But not the same way you could get to it these days. And so I sort of indoctrinated myself a little bit down a path that wasn't very helpful um, because it was all theory based. And then when I got this dog, I was just like, holy shit, none of this is working, you know? And that's like, that was the catalyst to really start investigating properly, really coming to understand dog training. Um, you know, to, to the extent that I do now was all triggered by that dog. I, I talk about how I'm very lucky actually that he was such a disaster <laughs> um, because otherwise it just would have been another flash in the pan hobby. You know, if he'd been a great, yeah. if he'd been great and there were no, no issues, it would have been another thing that I just ticked the box of and moved on. Um, but because of all the work that I had to do, it was, um, mate, it was horrendous. Uh, he was a, uh, he was a big problem of a dog. Um, he forced you to learn, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's why, so that's why I always say my intro to dogs really was baptism by fire. I jumped in that fire, but I still had to, had to figure out my way out. So what was it about the theory based stuff that kind of just went out the window, I suppose is what. Yeah, mate, I think, um, I still feel pretty strongly about this and I sort of teach it when I teach at the seminar. So I think when you're just reading books and you download, you're digesting media that, you know, is not video, right? So like, uh, when you've got one group of people saying to train a dog, all you need is uh, positive reinforcement. There's no, um, there's no reason to use any pressure. There's no compulsion is totally unnecessary. The idea of pain compliance is disgusting. All that kind of stuff. When you got one group of people saying that and another group saying, no, that's not true. You do need to do those things, but they both claim to have the same evidence. And without getting your hands on that evidence, 
Um, I still feel pretty like, okay with the fact that I was, I was very much plugged into the sort of force free community to start with. And I, I was really, I was really into it. And I love the idea that training dogs without any form of pressure, any form of compulsion was the way to do it. And, and to be honest, that dog, I trained that, I trained that dog to a very, very high standard. Um, but I, and I could get him to do really cool stuff, but I couldn't get him to stop doing the stuff that he didn't, he was, yeah. <laughs> he was so dangerous. And so, you know, I had stuck at it for a long time and I was really deep into that community and was looking for support and, uh, it just wasn't there, you know? And, and I, I had, uh, I had dog trainers come around the house and, and really not tell me anything that I wasn't already doing and basically say like, well, you know, we don't know what to do here at this point. Right. And so that's when I was like, well, I'm going to look at these other people. Like I'm not giving up. Um, and you know, or, or very, really quickly I've got him under control. And then, you know, that became a catalyst to like, I became what my mentor Bart would call like a popo nade trainer. So like I trained everything with positive reinforcement and I was happy to use punishment, but I still really didn't fully understand or was willing to use like pressure to learn sort of straight negative yeah. reinforcement. Right. Um, and it took me a while, like several years to come around to that and get good at that. And so like, it's been a real evolution along the way and sort of not just, um, you know, learning the stuff, but having to come to terms with the idea of that it's not only necessary, but like, it's not, it's not the evil that my initial imprinting, um, well, told me that it was. Absolutely. And do you feel that like maybe he thought little things were overwhelming? Because he didn't know how to deal with a little bit of pressure or more so. Yeah, like, or the dog. Um, yeah. Man, I think the dog just had a really bad development. Like knowing what I know now, I think that um, he was a Malinois and he was, you know, this is 15 years ago or something. So like it was at a time when they weren't that popular and not many people really knew how to raise one. And I think that he, he wasn't like, I'd never found out his exact bloodline, but sort of looking at him and knowing bloodlines, like I know now and knowing where he came from, I can make some pretty good guesses. And so he probably wasn't a very strong nerve dog, but I think more than anything, it was the development that, um, probably he was taught the world's dangerous, be, you know, like defend yourself right from the jump. And then what he wasn't really taught was like how to discern what is dangerous and what's not. And, and so he was he was a kind of dog that just went on the offensive straight away. Uh, never to me, which is lucky, I suppose. Never to me or my wife, but um, to to everybody else, he was. He was. I don't know. Can I swear here? He was yeah, a, yeah, go, go he was a fucking dangerous dog. Like he was. A, he was a lot. Um, but you know, we got him under control, and he was managed throughout his life. He was. He never. He was never going to be like my current dog, who is you know a different a different animal altogether. Though they look similar, um, yep. different thing altogether. It's funny that, right? Like something looks similar, but they're not the same on the inside, right? No, completely different. Mate, actually, that leads into a question here from uh, Nikki West. She goes, what's your imp what's your opinion on the importance of understanding puppy development for handlers in any working dog field, and, excuse me, and how we start conditioning, how the mother imprints on the pup in its first few weeks of life? Yeah. Um, a puppy development is this wild thing that, uh, I I've sort of gone like full circle on, so I didn't understand it. So I didn't do a lot of it and then I understood it. So I did tons of it and then I realized I was doing too much of it. So I didn't do a lot of it. And now <laughs> I'm sort of landed back there. And so I have this thing. Uh, um, it's a big part of the course I want to make is, is not just like what, you know, in the working dog space and sort of the biting dog space, we, there's a lot of emphasis on getting dogs gripping correctly and setting the grip and exposure and all this kind of stuff. And no, that's true. 
But what I've really come to terms with in puppy development is um, the most important things with puppies is that they they understand that they're safe. And, and I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, through cr- trying to strengthen a puppy and trying to, you know, develop a puppy into being their ultimate dog, that they have this vision of what they're going to be. I think... Um, you know, and I've been guilty of this. I'm not, I'm not saying that I haven't fallen into this trap, but what I think happens quite a lot is people in the dog space who come in with their first dog and then, you know, that dog does well or or whatever it's their trial dog, but then the next dog they get, that's going to be, that's going to be the dog they make an impact with and, and they overdo it with that dog. Right. So like they're, they're putting too much pressure on that dog. And I don't necessarily mean even always like. Uh, physical pressure, it can be emotional pressure and yeah, pressure of expectation. Absolutely. And so what I think of puppy development is it's super important, but I also think that the really the most important thing, like I have these sort of check boxes that I think is most important. And I think the first is that that little puppy believes that it's safe and that someone loves it. I think that's probably the most important. And then I start exposing that puppy to the world or, or any, you know, the, any environment that it's ever going to be expected to work within, I'm going to start exposing it to that, but in small increments and, and in a way that shows it like, Hey, this is just normal. This is not, don't make a big deal about this, this environment, whatever it is. And then after that, I can start saying, well, okay, like these are some of the specific skills that are going to set you up for the remainder of your life. But I think that sequence is most important. And I think that sometimes that's what everybody does. There's nothing, there's nothing groundbreaking in those three things. Right. But I think that, making sure that they're in that order is probably the most important thing. And and what we see, I'm interested, mate, whether it's identifiable in your world, but like in the biting dogs world, you really don't know shit about a dog when it's a puppy. Right. And, and, and there's there's strong evidence of that, you know, that they did the super dog program in America and, and basically they determined that you can't tell shit about a puppy and it's real and it's suitability to actually turn out for the job at eight weeks old. You can't make any real decisions. And, and so that's, you know, if you know the bloodline and you know really well and you know these traits and you've seen that mating happen before, you can start to make much more educated guesses. But I think that when you just look at a 8, 10, 12-week-old puppy, I've seen some potatoes turn into killers and I've seen some killers turn into potatoes, you know, like it, it, yeah. it goes both ways. And so for me, uh, I put in a lot of sort of time, effort and thought into just sort of trying to steer the ship where I want it rather than sort of, you know, trying to drive it too hard. Uh, absolutely. And just like, to, I suppose to answer what you, uh, you asked me back there was um, obviously we rely heavily on genetics, mm-hmm. you know, like if we want a dog that's good in the paddock, but well, we're going to go to someone that predominantly has paddock dogs or someone yeah. that with a yard dog or a cattle dog, we're going to kind of drift that way. And, you know, we got a litter of pups here at the moment that we bred f- for ourselves because we want a couple of bitches and um, we look at them and, we're watching the traits and like something that comes forward with a bit of punch and wants to fight its brothers and the ones that sit back and think and mm-hmm. you know even when they play something that goes sideways before it comes forwards and we go all right well it might have these traits but over the next 12 weeks of development to the next 12 months that could flip on its head compared on to its yeah. experiences and associations totally. it has right totally 100. yeah and mate that's one of the things like i used to do it professionally like i used to charge people and now I don't because I, I find it so, so stressful in like sourcing puppies for people. Um, yeah. And the problem is you just don't know, right? Like you just don't know how it's going to pan out. And, and, yeah. and, and in Australia, the problem we face, especially with Malinois, is it's a, it's a young breed. 
And so there aren't a lot of repeat matings and there aren't a lot of uh, really, um, you know, uh, stable bloodlines. There aren't many of people who have like a family bloodline where you can count on a particular thing happening. And so uh, the role of genetics, while super, super important, absolutely, it's kind of hard to pick here in Australia because we're most of the most of the Mallies that are being bred are outcrosses. And so there's a lot of genetic variants in it that you, it could go either way. So you just got to make your best guess. And, and, and I think also like one of the things that I find super stressful is you know, like puppies change every minute. They're a different creature. And so, you know, you can go and assess a litter and they're, you know, you can come up with a, a one to 10 of who you would like from the litter based on the traits that you see. And you can attest that same litter in the afternoon and you'll get a different order. And so yeah, like, I yeah. think, and that's true of any litter of any set of dogs, right? Like they, they can, even a uniform litter, it's going to be minor variances and it's going to depend who ate more at the last meal or who ran around, who, who got the zoomies and ran around and now presents as flat, but actually he's the highest drive dog because he did the most. And now he's tight. Like there's just no, there's no way to I, know. So it's just spent a bit of time observing those pups over a period totally. of time, right? Exactly. And, and you, you touched on strengthening pups there. Do you want to, um, in, in your field, when you talk about strengthening, what, what do you, how do you classify that? Man, I think, um, you know, like for really it's recovery for us. I think most people, most dogs sort of people agree is that like, you know, novelty is going to be interesting to a young dog, no matter what. Um, and it's the way they, not necessarily the way that they first react to any stimulus, but the way they recover. And so for us, for sure, strengthening is super important because they don't know anything. They don't know shit. They're puppies. They don't know anything. And so you got to yeah, start exposing right. them to stuff and saying like, hey, this is not something you should be worried about. But if for some reason they are, then you show them like, hey, this isn't of concern to you. This isn't something that, um, that could hurt you, could harm you. You know, you approach it, turn off the pressure by going at it rather than fleeing from it and, and, and really trying to develop that open social forward type dog that I think is for the most part, I think no matter like in working dog circles, like I think that's, that's the key criteria that everybody's looking for. I then like, Oh, I like them to bite stuff as well. You know, like, and, and yeah. like we can add our, we can add our specifics after that, but open social, social and forward is I think really what we're after all the time. Absolutely, man. Um, Nikki's always uh, also asked, what age would you leave the pups with their mother until and why? Um, it's a good question. So uh, I typically don't have a lot of say in that. I don't breed, right? So I don't yep. breed dogs. So that's up to a breeder. Uh, but I've seen a lot of success with working dogs that are separated as early as six weeks. Certainly not before that. Um, and six weeks is probably even a little bit early. But I think traditionally, you know, we, we, we separate dogs from the, their litter mates and their mother at eight weeks. But in all honesty, all the litters that I've assessed over time, and there's been a few, they usually look their best at that seven week mark. And then of course there's variances on that, but that for sure, I do get concerned when they're allowed to hang with their litter mates past eight weeks. That tends to worry me. I think in, um, in my experience, they often then sort of become a bit, um, as ridiculous as this sounds like a bit doggy, they, they, yep. they identify with dogs too much and they enjoy the company of other dogs more than I want them to. Um, so that's why I've found sort of the earlier, uh, that six weeks mark, I, I, I wouldn't want one that early, but I've certainly had, have, have taken puppies as early as that. And 
and they they really become sort of very neutral to other dogs very easily and they and they become much more affiliative but again i don't know whether that was just the individuals that i had um i think that's one of the main things as well um like i'm on at the moment i'm raising the second set of brothers uh that i've done um had another set before and i love doing that because it 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 just shows that genetic variance like these are these are litter mate brothers and they're nothing alike and that's happened with the last two where they're genuinely aside from that they look similar then personality wise is absolutely nothing alike and and their development imprinting everything has been identical and so i think that's always a little bit of a kick in the teeth you know like we often say like oh look what a good job i did (laughs) it's like it was gonna go that way genetics right yeah exactly it was gonna go that way no matter what you did we're all products of nature and nurture right our genetics our dna and our education like yeah you know sometimes we enhance it and sometimes we kind of suppress it or you know off set it off its tracks a bit yeah you know, totally. and it, you mentioned genetics a, a bit there and you know and like we it's only your best guess right and yeah. that's that's all it is it's a it's a game of numbers and um one of well the best three sheeper in in the country i was fortunate enough to learn a lot from him and the advice he gave to me was you can breed two thoroughbreds and get a donkey but you can breed two bun- donkeys and get a real good resource too right yeah yeah it's yeah. just a gamble totally and and, and it's like again uh, to harp on it especially in this country for for malinois like my breed uh it's it's hard because it's a new breed it's only been in the country like 30 35 years something like that so uh there aren't that many people that really have an established bloodline where you you can count on getting something you know like where their parents are you know closely aligned in type there aren't many breedings like that happening so it's tricky mate speaking of are you concerned with where the Malamois are going to head in this country? Um, in what way? I'll put it this way. I'm getting people that cannot handle a dog to rock up with Malamois. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting the people that are competent as well rock up with Malamois. But, you know, a lot of people that, you know, they watch these movies and they go, these dogs are highly trained. And then they watch, you know, like um, some of these um, war movies or whatever they may yeah. be or, youtube clips of these dogs climbing walls and they go mm-hmm. oh i can make that happen but the truth is i wouldn't give these guys a pet rock yeah 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 uh, and then they're going to go off and then they they want to breed dogs they're yeah. like well wait a minute like like i i think within five to ten years personally uh the pound the new staffy will be malama like the pounds mm-hmm. will be full of them you know unfortunately yeah, yeah. mate it's it, it's quite possible i have mixed feelings about it like in one way i, I very much agree and i, I am concerned um and in another i'm not at all <laughs> another i'm like let people do whatever they want you yeah. know like i had no business buying a malinois when i did uh i knew i didn't i didn't have a fucking clue what i was doing and here we are <laughs> you know so like i feel like you how do you gatekeep that and i think the main thing is um you know e- education i think that having having the people's access to to good trainers and good information is is important my bigger concern is access to the training. Like I think that you yeah. like my concern is a, as the tools are being banned and that that types of training is, you know, being harder and harder to do bite work, for example, you know, it's illegal in Melbourne. Our heads are on the chopping block in the biting dog world. Like I think that, you know, at the time's ticking. And, and so the number of people who uh, really know how to do it is small. 
and the number of people getting into it is even smaller because you can see this is not a there's no longevity longevity in this where where it's going to go and so that's my real concern is that uh for the more and more people who are getting malinois because they saw john wick or whatever yeah. i'm like fuck yeah awesome come around like get into it learn how to train join, do a sport get like train your dog to as high a standard as you can but there aren't many people who know how to do that. And so these dogs, especially if you get a very powerful one, they, 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 they solve problems with their mouth. You know, for the most part yeah. with those kind of mallies, you don't really teach them to bite. You teach them when and, and when to yeah. bite, right? Rather than how. They know how to do that. And so it's more like that's my concern is people's access to information and good training. Um, not so much that the dog – like it's – I think that <laughs> – I don't know. Like I say, I, I just hasten to be like, no, you shouldn't get them. Cause I imagine, I remember myself Googling Malinois Sydney and buying, buying one from the first hit and then, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then going yeah. like, okay, fuck, I have to figure this out now. We, we, we got one. Let, what are we doing with it now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully my phone, like the, I'm the second call after the, <laughs> after that first one. Yeah. But, um, I will jump back out in a sec, but, um, you mentioned, obviously your most influential dog was that first one you had, mm. um, you learned a lot, but how about influential people? You mentioned about access to training and trainers. Mm. How about influential people like to um, help you get you to where you are? Yeah, man, I've had like uh, a couple of incredible, I've been a very lucky person my whole life. I've been, I've fallen into. You make uh, your own luck, mate. Yeah, well maybe, but I've fallen into, um, training with some of the best in the world. So I started out with a guy like Sam Monty. He was in the, he, so he was a military policeman um, that got brought into my unit to raise the dog capability. And Sam, uh, you know, is arguably sort of one of the best dogmen in the country, I'd say. He's incredible. So I was lucky to be able to learn under Sam for as long as I did. And he was probably the biggest, uh, sort of like probably the most influential because it was an early part in my early stage of my career of learning. Right. And so like I had the most to learn at that point. And so I learned that from him. Um, but then beyond that, I, I got tied up with Bart Bellin, who's arguably in the, you know, in the working dog as in biting dog space, he's arguably best in the world. That's a, that's an impossible thing to measure, but yeah. if it could be done, he's definitely in that, that the top handful. Bart was a mentor for me for, you know, probably the last um, five, six years, something like that, or probably longer, actually, maybe seven or eight years. Um, and that's been an incredible relationship. He, you know, his system is Nepo Po. I, uh, you know, I learned that from him early in the phase of him teaching it at, in a really detailed manner or beyond seminars, and then went on to be a teacher of that myself and traveled the world teaching that. So like Bart has for sure been, um, you know, probably the, the, the key person of influence in my career. That's for sure. No worries. Actually, I will touch on Nipopo for a second mm -hmm. there, but um, no, that, and I suppose influence like that, influences like that in our lives, are, they're very important, right? Like they totally. kind of, totally. can, well, we mate, can be on one is, path and then all of a sudden. Pfft. Yeah. The thing is like knowledge is a relay race. You're meant to fucking carry the baton and pass on to the next person. And, and, I love and that. Bart's, Bart certainly has been that more than I think anyone else. And, and so, uh, of Bart, like, you know, it's an expensive school that he runs and all that, but like Bart gives everything to everyone who asks for it, you know? So he, uh, for me was this incredible teacher and beyond teaching me, 
how to work with dogs was very clear that he was also teaching me how to teach others how to work with dogs. Like he was, that was a very, that was very clear in our relationship from the start that this is, this is stuff that has to be spread around and passed on. Um, and so I was hugely lucky to, to, to basically be able to piggyback off of his 45 years of experience. And so rather than having to make all those mistakes myself, you know, of course you have to make some yourself, right? Yeah. But, but, but you start I, here instead of yeah. here. Exactly. And, and then beyond the knowledge and uh, capability he gave to me, he also lent me some of his credibility um, by, you know, allowing me to use his brand and teach his brand, um, which, you know, is not like, it's a, it's a, it's a proprietary name. He owns the name yeah. Nipopo, not the system. Russian, as he will tell you, Russian gypsies have been teaching bears with Nipopo for 300 years. It's not, it's not new. Um, yeah. but articulating it in the way that he does. And now many, many, many other people do is what's yeah. new. Actually, we won't worry about my structure. We'll come back to it. Mate, um, do you want to explain for people out there that don't know what Nipopo is? Just give us a brief rundown. Yeah. So Nipopo, yeah. It, it stands for like negative, positive, positive, right? And it's just uh, the, what what I think has happened very much throughout the world is that the, the the needle the needle moves too heavily either side, so that you get a lot of sort of quite old school negative reinforcement based compulsion based training. That's one way, and and the reaction to that has been the crazy force free training. Yeah, and Nipopo is the fusion of the two, but in a way that is reimagined a little bit. In that, like as I said earlier, Bart would say that I was at one point a Popo Nay trainer, where I could I would taught things with positive reinforcement. And these days, most people are so good at that, that you can get away with that until something goes wrong. And then the point of Nipopo is that if there hasn't been a, a learning phase that involves negative reinforcement, trying to give the dog a correction after the dog has not done what you've asked it to do, a physical pressure correction is never going to work because the dog doesn't understand what that pressure is. And so what we see a lot in the training space is, you know, those popone trainers. So they'll, they'll, they'll teach with positive reinforcement and they'll use pressure or compulsion or whatever in order to stop behaviors. And that's fine. But the issue becomes when you ask a dog to do something and he doesn't do it for whatever reason. And that day always comes with every dog. At some point, the dog says, no, nah, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Using compulsion at that point is not going to get the dog to do it because he hasn't had a learning phase. He doesn't know what to do with that pressure. So the very foundation of Nipopo is that if you don't use some form of compulsion in a learning phase, if, if the dog ends up learning the behavior using nothing but positive reinforcement, whatever it is that you're trying to teach the dog, then there's a thoughtful and thought out process of layering that compulsion over the top of what the dog already knows. So that if at any point and with every behavior, you can say to the dog like, hey, I need you to do this. If the dog says, no, I'm not doing it for whatever reason, you can apply pressure in that moment and the dog like goes, yeah, I've got it. And, and does do the behavior as powerfully and uh, with as much intention as he would have had he chosen to do it the first time for nothing but the positive reinforcement. So that's that's really the structure of the system. Um, and, and as I say, there's loads of people who don't, have never heard of Nipopo that use the same, that teach the, do the same shit, yeah. right? It just that that brand brand name Nipopo really just means you learned it from Bart, right? Like it's his, yeah. it's his system. And there's, of course, there's intricacies to it. There's specific orders that you do things in. There's certain, um, you know, like there's certain tricks that we, we teach the dog in order to develop a foundation, all these sorts of things. But doing all of those is not proprietary. Saying that you, you use Nipopo is, and, and really that just carries 
that significance that you were trained by Bart himself. Uh, thanks for breaking that down, mate. And pleasure. Uh, well, I was at a big trial a couple of weeks ago, and it was thrown around. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I, let's let's break it down. So I'm glad you could actually highlight the ins and outs of it there for us. Pleasure. Um, mate, there's a question here from the one and only um, Shane Chuck Fowler, and he's asked. Where, where do you think Australia sits in relation, and we already touched on this, in relation to other countries for quality of dog trainers available for sports dogs and working dogs? Mate, I think um, the problem in, you know, all around the world is that the grass is always greener. Um, and, and we always, you know, we have in Australia been bringing out Europeans and Americans and all, all sorts, right, for a, very, for a really long time to educate us because we felt isolated. Uh, yeah. and, and we were once upon a time, but we're not anymore in the, like the, the, the way the world works these days, we're not. And so I am in the extremely fortunate position of traveling the world and teaching other people. Um, and what I find is that the level of dog training is pretty uniform all around the world. <laughs> I think that yeah. you get really good and you get really shit. And yeah. I think that in Australia, we have some really incredible trainers. Like absolutely. We have in the dog sports space that I'm within, we have some of the most incredible trainers getting around. What we don't have as much is a culture of it. Yeah. So we don't have as many, like, you know, we're a small, I mean, we're a huge country, but with a small population. And so we don't have as many we're trials. Drop in the ocean. Exactly. We don't, we don't have as many opportunities to demonstrate the capability that we have. But in my opinion, there's some really incredible trainers in Australia and, and more and more coming. Um, but as I say, I think the, the, the issue is that we don't have a lot of access to the trials and, and the dogs and the, the competitions in general. There just isn't a big enough community for us to really demonstrate the capability that we have to the extent that I know that it's there. Um, yeah. But for sure, we have some incredible trainers here. And, and I think we have some natural dog minds in Australia. Like I think that Australia is, for the most part, still a very a fairly connected people that, you know, understand how animals work and don't uh, too much fantasize, you know, the Disney version of, of, of animals. Um, so like for the most part, I think that most trainers in Australia are actually pretty good. Um, we, you know, and, and we don't necessarily think that cause you, all you see, like what, if you're a pretty good dog trainer in Australia, when you look at your Instagram feed and look at the exceptional dog trainers, if there's 10 of them, you know, only one or two of them are from Australia, but that's just the numbers game of how many, the population that we have not representative of the skill set that the average trainer contains. Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. And he's got asked another question here is, um, and, and we're going to have some fun with this one. Uh, what do you think about the state of the industry here in Australia, culture, positive force for reverse balance trainers, and what, and what might be our balance trainers biggest hurdle for the future? Mate, the biggest hurdle is um, we're arguing against people who think they're right. So, and and they think that not only are they right about what they're saying, but they're morally right. And 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 that's the problem. Is that um, I think the issue, I think that there's actually not many people who are able even to decide whether they are a force free or balanced trainer. And I can say that with some authority because I've been deeply immersed in both communities and there aren't many people like me who just were exposed to one thing and went, Oh, okay, well I'll take that as like, 
solid information and then exposed to something else and went like, oh, that has counter information. I'm totally willing to, you know, disagree with myself as of yesterday. There aren't many people who have that capability. And so I think as well, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, this could get me into trouble, but there's a lot of people, I think in the force free community who, um, don't have any capacity for moderation. And so their idea of like, if I use a prong collar and an electric collar on a dog, I have the capacity to use that very lightly, or I have the capacity to use that with, with like a more heavy hand. And I will do which one is necessary to achieve the outcome that I want. And the outcome that I want always takes into account the experience of the dog and all those caveats. Right. But, uh, some people don't have that. And so what I think the majority of the, the people that we like, who are really force free, like really staunchly, uh, feel that way. I think that many of them were abused at some point and can't yeah. understand the difference between like pressure to receive a, an outcome, you know, whether it's negative reinforcement or positive punishment that has an effect and is just used to achieve the effect versus, um, you know, like used with poor intention and used or being ridiculed for it. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and like a pressure from which there's no escape. And I think that yeah. like, if you grew up in an environment under a pressure from which there was no escape, I could see how you could be totally anti any form of pressure. So I get that. And then there's people who, like I say, who I think that if they were to use any pressure, know themselves that they would use it in a way that was unethical. And I see that because I talk to people, I had people on the podcast who say, you know, the average person, if they were allowed to use an e-collar would just fry their dog. And I said, yes. mate, that's what you would do because that's what you think. Correct. Right? <laughs> it's his perception of how to use it. Yeah. But yeah. like the, what I know to be true, know to be true is that majority of people who buy an e-collar and spend up to $2,000 on that e-collar almost never use it because they're afraid of using it incorrectly. And yeah. so his perception was that, oh, they'll put it on the dog and fry the dog. And I say, well, like now we know how you have in the past or will continue to use an e-collar. So then there's that. And then there's the other, the sort of worse than them. And, and this really is like, in my opinion, the scourge is that th there's a lot of people who go into the force free camps, um, who are not right. And, and they have, you know, if they were from a fairly compulsive training background and they say that they're now positive only or plus R or whatever they call themselves. You develop a certain audience doing that, right? Especially if you've got some good teaching, you are a good trainer, people come on board. And what I have seen for sure, and like, you know, I've spoken to these people, I know this to be true, is that some of them now are terrified of their own fan base because if their own fan base found out how they actually trained, right, yeah. they would cancel them. And so I think that um, a lot of people have indoctrinated an audience to thinking that they're one thing and now they're, they're stuck. There's no way out. So I think we're in trouble. I think in all honesty, I think like, I don't disagree. I, yeah, mate, I am really concerned about it to the point where I had like 12 months ago, I had a bit of a freak out over the whole thing and quit as a job, as a dog trainer. Um, yeah, right. Because I, well, thing is like, I got kicked out of the army with a really bad injury. So like I, I medically discharged and you know, had I not broken my back, I would, you, you would never heard of me. I'd still be in the army and I, I would be doing that. I had planned to do that for the rest of my life. And that really fucked with me because like, I actually didn't know who I was if I wasn't that, right? Like I'd been that since I was a 19 year old kid. I don't know, like if I'm not a commando, what the fuck am I? And it, it, it messed with my head. 
and it was taken from me and there was nothing I could do and it wasn't my fault. And then last year when they started branding prong collars in Queensland, I, I was like, Oh fuck, it's happening to me again. Like I'm not going to be able to be a dog trainer anymore. Uh, and yeah. so I was like, I'm getting off the ship before it sinks. And so <laughs> I got a real job and I didn't last long before I realized I fucking miss, first of all, I don't like jobs. They're shit. I like working for myself. Um, but also like I missed it and I realized now, nah, fuck it. I'm going back. I'm fighting and I am going down the ship, but I do think the ship is going down. I, I truly yeah. do. Um, uh, and it will yeah, come back. Good. The pendulum has to swing, but I yeah. just don't, I, 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 I don't know how much damage will be done before the pendulum swings. And what, like my biggest concern is what corporate knowledge will remain in order when the pendulum does swing back who's left to educate people when it swings back. And then that just puts us back to the start and we have to relearn this shit, you know, and more dogs have to suffer at the hands of people learning. Well, we've got that. We don't need to do that again. Do you find it hypocritical that the force free trainers are ones that, um, in my experience anyways, ones that apply more, more force on anyone than anyone else. Totally. Totally. A hundred percent. And, and, and one of the things like I've trained with people who, claim to be force free. And then when it actually comes to doing it, they're way more compulsive than me. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm like, hang on, like I'm the compulsion based trainer here is what you've been telling people. And yeah. I'm more hands off than you. You're, you're like, and you know, they're using a dominant dog collar because the dog's dangerous or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, come on, this is not, it's wordplay. And that's the yeah, issue. Is I think that some people who have played the word game too much and now they're backed into a corner and, and they just don't get it. And, and I think the ultimate, like, you know, it's time to put on the tinfoil hat, but I think the ultimate goal is that we, we don't, we shouldn't be owning pets. Like that, that's where yes. it goes is they don't, they, and look, there's evidence for that, you know, in Holland, they, 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 they concluded after looking at the, those dogs, the, the KMPV type Malinois, um, that these dogs were uncontrollable without prong collars and e-collars. And so the, the resolution was that they should stop being bred. Not that you should allow people to use these tools. That those yeah, well, so, let's, so, so let's just extinct them. Yeah. And, and like, I think what, you know, like, I don't think that people think this kind of stuff through, right? So like, I think that, you know, government, you know, I worked in government for a long time, right? Like it's so compartmented. Nobody's talking to anybody. It's one of the, yeah, my bugbears. So yeah, totally. It's one of the bugbears yeah. I have with the cops um, is, you know, like the dog unit will talk about how hard it is to find good working dogs. I'm like, well, you guys are the ones making this hard, right? Yeah. Like you're the one, <laughs> like, especially in Melbourne, you guys ban bite work. So of course there's no one breeding suitable dogs for you because they've got no market to sell them except for you. And then you only buy a few and they have no breeding testing ground, you know, like they have yeah. no, so there's all these issues of it. Um, and I think that we are going to find ourselves in difficulty. Like it's going to get to the point where, first of all, we can't train effectively the dogs that we have. And then we'll no longer have those dogs, but then those working roles will no longer exist. And I think that, um, I don't think many people who are outside of dogs actually appreciate the work that dogs do. And I know in your world, like, I think I saw recently that a dog is, you know, equivalent to an $80,000 a year employee and stuff like that. Right. And, and, and yeah. certainly that's the case in police military work is that the dog is a force multiplier and the dog, you know, whatever the investment on the dog, whether they pay, $3,000 for a puppy or $70,000 for a fully trained, ready to go dog. That's still going to be the cheapest employee they've ever had. hundred percent. It's not going to call in sick for him, right? Or take holidays. Yeah. Or and he, he, eats a, 
eats a few bucks a day in food. Yeah. That's it, right? He gets a, he gets his vet check. He might like the total overall cost for that employee might be two thousand dollars a year, and provides a, a level of capability unbel like unmatched by anything else. So, like, I think that that's when the pendulum will swing back. I think because at the end of the day, when you talk government, all that matters is the the money. And so, when the bean counters get involved, they'll go, "Oh shit, what's happened here?" Right? And and that's when the pendulum will swing back. Budget, budget, budget. And um, we spoke earlier about like we're all products of nature and nurture, right? Our DNA, our genetics, and and, and our education growing up. And well, I've got one of those left wing um extraordinaires around here right and it's all you know it's science-based it's science-based and i find it amazing to go it's science-based but wait a minute even if you observe a pack of wild dogs you will watch that they apply force and discipline each other within that pack so are you telling me that your science knows more than nature yeah the thing is with the science-based arguments a funny one because i like when you say cool can you show me the papers because yeah. I read them, I I subscribe. I get I get notified when they come out. I read them, and like they don't tell me the things that you're telling me. Yeah. It, <laughs> like, and it's, it's peer reviewed. Of course, it's reviewed by someone who has the same opinion as you do. Yeah, <laughs> but like you know, most notably recently, there was a, a big name in the force free space talking about how there was a, a study that said that um, aggression, resource guarding aggression, could be fixed with nothing but force free techniques. And then you have read of the paper. There were only four dogs in the study. Um, two of them were never reassessed. So now there's two dogs in the study and the two dogs that, uh, were reassessed showed like a decrease by 30% or something like that. So like 70% of the time, the dog is still guarding its food and is dangerous around it. Um, like that's not success. That is not by anyone's measure success in a two dog study where, 70% of the time the dog is still guarding the food. Like that's, that's so, so I think like very often people will say, oh, this, and, and this was the conclusion of the paper. And it's like, cool, but did you read it? And, and did you actually understand it? Like one of the ones, you know, there was one that wasn't trying to draw, a, uh, uh, it was on clickers, but it wasn't in comparison to anything else beyond other markers. And, and one of the things that said like of no markers was that it was just as effective as using a, a clicker. They look at the behavior and the behavior is sit in front of the handler. It's like, no yeah. shit. Like, okay, but now teach that at distance, right? So like, and have the behavior being looking another way or focusing intently on something else. How are you going to, how are you going to train that without a marker? Like, I don't oh, yeah. like, like, so it just doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of these studies, they just don't really make any sense. And, and, you know, I put all my weight into the old studies because like pre-ethical standards committees and, and look, I'm not saying that studies should go back that way but back in the day like in the 50s 60s 70s when they were actually trying to learn shit right or when they were actually like okay let's figure this out we've got the data like we have it right like yeah. we, we, they've done the experiments a lot of animals went through a lot of shit for us yeah. to get that information it, it, it's disrespectful for us to then say i was just gonna touch on that yeah it's made it is it it, it really um it, it i can't think of a better word it's disrespectful to to just say, well, I don't care that we did that in the past and we have that information. I have strong feelings about this. So I choose to, I choose to go against what we know to be true. And I think that's one of the biggest things, like it got me on a rant here, mate, but, but like, you're I, think right, that, <laughs> I think that people who are anti balanced training, they don't, um, it's more about them than the dog. I yeah, think as it's well, personal. 
Yeah. Right? They're putting human, they're putting human beliefs and human values on on a canine, and they're not they're not communicating with the canine as a canine. Yeah, exactly. But what I will say is, you know, like I know and am friends with and have trained with some incredible trainers who have made the choice not to do that. Right. So, like for example, as lady um Sarah Bruski, she might be one of the she might be one of the best animal trainers to have worked the face of the earth. And she doesn't use e collars or prong collars or anything like that. Um, she just says that she's is playing the game on hard mode. That's what she wants to do. But she also doesn't do like behavior modification, right? Like she doesn't she says, no, I don't do that. Like I I she she does a lot of different dogs that do a lot of different things. She's an incredible trainer. Um, but she will tell you, like, this is not the best way. I just choose to do it this way. Yeah, and yeah, so, get a hard get a hard long road. Yeah. It's actually funny that study you mentioned, did they disclose a dog's weight after of the two dogs left at the end of the study? No. Because they were three hundred percent heavier and they just there was no food aggression because they were too fat and full. Too fat. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, actually, I'm just going to ask you a quick one. Go back a bit here, mate. Your current dogs. You want to talk about your current dogs? Right, I've got two dogs of my own at the moment. I've got Valerie, who's my spring spaniel. Um, I got her, uh, she's nine. I got her as a bit of a project to film. I, it was when I first started making content, sort of being a person that did that. And I made a video series on how to raise a puppy. And one of the things that sort of always shipped me when I was looking at other people's content was it's kind of bullshit. Like you can tell that like the dog already knows what they're trying to teach. And that, um, so I decided I was going to raise this puppy and rather than it being a someone talking about how to raise a puppy or showing the various stages, I was going to do it. And so I filmed every session and showed everything with her over 12 months. The yeah. plan was to give her, give her away. away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, um, we were, the plan was to train her sort of as an assistance dog when it was all done and give her away to like a veteran with PTSD or something. But we realized that she'll give you a PTSD before she helps you with it. And so, so about six months in, I realized that I was going to keep her. And so she's my pet, you know, she's my little heart dog. She's trained in a lot of cool stuff, but at the moment at nine years old, she's a borderline wild animal. Like yeah. uh, she comes back when I call her and downs at a distance. They're the sort of two behaviors that are non-negotiables for me. But beyond that, she's just a little cuddler. Um, and then I've got my Malinois Remy. Uh, so my dog Remco, he's six. Um, unfortunately, I've had a lot of health issues with him. Um, he's just a bit brittle, like he falls apart. Which is a bummer because like other than that, he's sort of the dream dog. He's been, he's um, he's powerful and stable and he's got nerves of steel and he's everything that you, I like in a dog. Um, just unfortunately has had kind of a shortened career just because of numerous injuries along the way. Now, like he's a little bit brittle, but also he's the perfect storm of zero self-preservation, incredibly high drive and stupidity, you know? So like he, he regularly, he does, he has no concern for his own safety. Ever. I've got to kill people like that. Yeah. And they're the best dogs, but they're headaches. Oh yeah, and the my dogs had more um, chiro appointments than I. I've never had a chiro appointment in my life. In the last yeah, yeah. Um, two months, I've had like four chiro, chiro appointments. So yeah, 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 they're, they're nuts like that, aren't they? Yeah, for this dog who was given to me as a gift, he certainly has cost me many, many thousands. He's I'm probably twenty five k in for this dog. Oof, has, wow, he is brutal. Oh mate, he he's yeah. We've had plenty of issues, but he's also like he you know he's broken he's a bunch of teeth tore his ACL, but he like degloved his leg one day. Like he just is, and you know, sort of continued chasing the bird he's chasing. It wasn't until I called him back that he was kind of mad at me for stopping him. And I was like, dude, you're badly hurt. And he's like, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Off to the vet. 
He sounds very much like Mo of mine out there. Same thing. Oh, really? Uh, impaled himself on a on a stump, mate, and kept working. I thought he got bitten by a snake. He's moving around, like, what's going on? And I called him back, and he's like pissed off that I called him off the sheep. And he looks back at me, and the blood's just pouring out. I call him too many. He makes it like halfway and just collapses. And I'm just like, dude, how did you keep going? Yeah, it's amazing, right? Oh, uh, it's nuts. That mate. singular focus. It's so impressive to see. Oh, that that prey drive. Like once you have it there, and um, actually, there, there's actually I'm going to touch on that in a sec. We're coming back to prey drive. But now with your exposure to so many dogs, how, I'm assuming there's going to be another dog come along. How are you going to pick your next pup? Man, that's a really tough question. So. Can't give within, me the feed. Well, within Malinois, there's, um, there's a lot of variants, right? And uh, I, for a long time, was really into KMPV bloodlines, which are like Dutch bloodlines. Yep. And I think in the police and military type work, I think they probably are the best dogs. They're very powerful, very stable. They're power animals. So like the KMPV is the Royal Dutch Police Dog Association. That sport, which is the the sort of precursor to being a police dog in Holland, is considered like for a very long time was considered sort of the 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 standard in what a dog should be in that space. Um, but it's a it's a power rather than precision based sport. Um, and so those dogs are mentally exactly what i want and and i've been super happy with my dog i love him to pieces um natural like like so that he his aggression comes from possession right so like he he he's very stable he's not really scared of anyone in fact you know we you know within our development we have to eventually at some point get a dog into defense right like the dog has to at like be concerned for his life right in order to call that dog finished and teach him how to fight through that and turn back into prey this dog was such a disaster to get into defense because he's just like, why would I be scared of anything? Like how I can't, I can't, he's like, I can't fathom a situation where I'm not the winner at the end of it. And so it was yeah. like, he's a difficult dog, but great in that way. Right. Um, but he, he, he's not as sharp as I think I would like in the future of my next dog. So my next dog, I don't know where I'll get it. And, and I'm not sure how I will arrange this. I don't know whether I'll import a dog or whether I'll find one in Australia, but what I want is a dog that is as powerful and as stable as him, but has a little bit more nerve and therefore can see the, see the world in a level of detail that he doesn't see. And, and through doing that, like I, I want to be able to train the obedience to a level of precision that my dog is not capable of. Now he has very precise obedience. We can do really well. We've got yeah. a lot of titles. It's all there. But he just doesn't see the with, world. You want something with a big vision that doesn't get yeah. so hyped up on the prey. Well, the prey drive is what I was going to ask well, next, right? Well, the prey is what I'll need. I'll need a ton of prey, but it's just like, it's just a little bit of nerve. Like in Mallies, it's just that they need a little pinch of concern to even be able to take in all the details. Like he's just, yeah. I don't like, I don't want to say he's lazy. He's not, not by any, but he's, um, he just doesn't care about enough stuff to, yeah to see the world in the level of detail that I feel like I want in my next dog. And that like, when you get those you, dogs, they just, sorry, go ahead. You, you just explained Sonic the Hedgehog, like just <laughs> get from A to B, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in order to move the way I want them to move and perceive everything, like that's the kind of dog that I want. So um, what's been exciting though in Australia is like one of the more established IGP bloodlines. So like IGP is the sport where you just bite the sleeve, right? That that's, yep. that's been very well established in Australia. One of those bloodlines seems to be meshing really well with some imported Belgian ring, like NVBK Belgian 
uh, ring sport bloodlines. And so, um, you know, the hard part is anyone can import semen and stuff, but it's having bitches to put it to. And so I've yeah. seen quite a few matings lately and there are some really good dogs in Australia at the moment from matings like that. It seems to be working really well. So, you know, if we we're having this conversation six months ago, I'd say that I'd be importing my next dog, but um, I feel pretty confident I'll find my next dog here in Australia. Um, yeah, but the thing definitely. is as well, like, so like I race train cell dogs and the beauty of doing that is I, I don't do that under a contract. Like they're, I raise train and then the dogs are for sale and you can buy them from the day after I buy them or until I say they're ready. And I start telling people, I want you to come and assess them. In fact, we're doing an assessment this week of two of the dogs who are a long way from being ready, but people are coming to have a look at them. They're not being tested. They're going to check them out, you know? Yeah. Um, so the beauty of that is like, I think rather than I'm not sure, but I think rather than seeking out a dog for myself, I think one day I'll just fall in love with one of them and keep it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a, that's a mad story to tell as well. Right. Like, um, that kind of, that dog has to kind of steal your heart rather yeah. than you being out focused and then. Yeah. Well, I mean, and my current dog is the same story. So like he, he was a dog that I had the option of, uh, I was probably going to sell, I was going to raise and sell him. Um, but pretty quickly just sort of realized like, no, this is the dog I've been waiting nine years to have. I'm keeping him. <laughs> and obviously you got to, um, you got to enhance like a lot of prey drive. Um, that is very important to you. So how do you go about enhancing that? And, um, if you have something that lacks a bit of prey drive, do you kind of, do you work on that? to a degree and then move it on? Or is it something you go, no, no, I'm going to keep at this. And how, yeah. how do you go about that? Yeah, we do need a lot of prey. And I think, you know, the reality is you can't put in what nature didn't. And so if they don't have it, sometimes it's been suppressed and you can sort of bring it out. Sometimes it's a gene that just needs to be flicked on. Um, but the thing is as well, like the high prey dogs, is certainly what I like, but they're not for everyone. And so yeah. usually in that working dog space, when a dog's, you know, doesn't have the prey that you want. It usually has the defense that it needs. And so it's a different style of work. It just means it's a different style of development. Um, and there's a, there's a different market for a dog like that. And if it doesn't have either of those in sufficient quantities, then it's someone's lovely pet, you know, like yeah. that's just the reality. Um, I think um, there's plenty of techniques to cultivate drive. And I think that drive is a bandwidth but that bandwidth is determined by mother nature and where where the drive that is expressed will be fall within that bandwidth is training um and so i think that usually you can move that needle a fair bit with some fancy techniques and you know you can frustrate the dog there's lots of different things you can do but there's still a ceiling and and, and if you hit that ceiling and it's not enough you can check out the defense and see what that's like it's I'm not especially good at using a lot of defense, especially like starting a dog there. It's sort of a more of an older school technique that I am. I know how to do and I've done plenty of, but it's just not where I'm best. It's not where I'm comfortable. So I'm usually better at getting other people to do that. Um, and, and what do you mean by that? Starting a dog at defense? Yeah, defense. So like defense is a response to threat. And so like for us in the biting dog world, um, prey, what we hope in the dream world is that prey will bring a dog into the fight, but defense will keep him there. And so, yeah. uh, we do a lot of what's called like, we call drive channeling where we teach the dog how to like go into a fight with a person, uh, genuinely seeing the person as prey. We want them to, to, to actually look at a person and be like, I am going to fucking eat you. Um, but first I have to stalk you, chase you, strike you, fucking kill you. And then I can eat you. And, um, but like the reality of a dog that can think that way, they're few and far between. And so prey is usually enough to bring the dog in. 
But then when things get real, it's defense that'll keep it there. Um, and so more sort of uh, older school techniques are a lot more defense heavy. We're right from the jump. We're looking to bring out like aggression as a response yeah. to a threat. Now that kind of dog, it, that's a different style of development. And, and, you know, done by the right person at the end of the day, you can't tell the difference when the dog's finished that it is what it is. Right. Um, but it, it certainly is a different type of work. And the, and the problem is, you know, if you overdo it in prey, all you do is just make the dog more crazy and you can go into frustration and frustration can lead to aggression. So you're still sort of on the right path. Um, the problem with working in defense, if that's where you have to start is that what comes after defense is avoidance. And so you know, you can, if you're not good at it or you're not skilled or just some dogs, like the margin just aren't there. Too much pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, as I say, all like you can't call a dog finished unless it's really capable of jumping in and out of those two drives and feeling quite comfortable in, in both. Um, but it's just not my preferred place to start in defense and, and bringing real aggression. If that's, what's going to bring the dog into the fight, there really isn't anywhere to go after that. And, and as I say, like, I'm not saying that that's wrong or shouldn't do it or, or is a diff, is a lesser dog. It's just a different dog. And these days in sort of the modern battle space, that's a, a much, that's a tougher dog to put into a, a place because it's an, it's a harder dog to handle. It, well, it's, yeah. it's, it's not harder, it's different. So like, especially within the special forces and SWAT teams that I work for, they can't employ a dog that's actually aggressive like that. Like it's just too unusable because it's too dangerous, too much of a headache. Um, and, too much management involved, right? Yeah. And, and like, you know, too much of, there's too much risk associated with a dog that, um, you know, typically a dog that's been worked in defense won't work for many people. Right. So like he has his handler and that's kind of it. And what yeah. they need in those SF teams is they're multi-handled dogs. Many of the dogs have multiple handlers and what they really need is actually that the dog identifies with his entire, especially in the army, the dog kind of needs to identify with the entire platoon and say like, Hey, I'm, I have a handler, but all you guys, like I've kind of put together that we're hunting together and anyone who gives me good advice to putting me on track, I'm totally willing to listen to. So they're, they're very open to information that leads to the positive outcome. Uh, whereas more of those defensive dogs are a bit more like, like, Hey, don't fucking tell me what to do. <laughs> and yeah. so they're a little bit harder to work with in that kind of environment. And, and then away from the military back to like, like I say, like a family environment, they're the ones mm. I probably trust a little least with. Yeah. They're harder to switch back off. Like yeah. uh, back in the eighties, my grandfather bred Rottweilers and we had a couple of dogs like that. Yeah. And um, they were dogs that didn't get socialized with the young kids much. Right. Cause yeah, I'm like, yeah. like yeah, you can turn it on and off. But what happens if one day it doesn't, it turns on itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and like, that's not to say, you know, those like those heavy prey dogs, like, that has its own risks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not without risk, yeah. um, but it's different risks. It's different risks. And so, like I say, there's not a right or a wrong. It's just, there's different flavors. And, and, and I think your, your imprinting and your development really decides what kind of flavor you're into. Um, but these days, like I say, in the working space, like if you're going to sell a dog, selling a really defensive dog is, is tricky that there isn't a huge market for it. Um, in, in the like police and military space, I think in the guard dog space, there's a huge market for it, right? Like that's what you want, but that's not the, that's not the market that I'm working in. And you're talking about that prey that chased that hunt and that person, otherwise known as a decoy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, um, what makes a good decoy? Uh, 
Well, in the by training, I suppose. <laughs> like, yeah, there's yeah. three ingredients to being a good decoy, right? The first is being fit. It's really hard. Um, yeah. The second is being not afraid of dogs. That's that's actually one of the key sort of gateways that a lot of people don't realize they're as afraid of dogs as they 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 find out that they are when well, they're at the biting end. Yeah, and you, you can, because you have to remain in control, you know, and and. And to the dog, it can become real, but to you, it's not, right? Like you're in a suit of armor that the dog can't, like you're in the bite suit, it can't hurt you. I mean, it can, it fucking hurts, but it, it, it can't injure you. And so I think being able to maintain that composure is really important. So being fit, being not afraid of dogs and being able to take direction. After that, you, anyone can learn it. There's, there's an element of being able to read a dog. Like if you're going to be a development decoy, we kind of have two stages of decoys or maybe three. The first being like a development decoy who will actually, you know, help bring the dog from not knowing what it's doing to being quite powerful and capable. And that, that's probably the hardest one because it's you, you like, you know, there's different styles, but the style I kind of prescribe to is that like, I want the dog to know as his development decoy that it's quite safe from me. Like I have no intention of hurting you. Um, I'm teaching you how to fight. And I need, I want that dog to really understand that like I am, I'm the karate instructor. I'm not the person you're fighting in the street. Right. Yeah. And then the next after that is uh, like a trial decoy. Who's going to test that dog. So, you know, like I am a certified trial decoy, but I like the overwhelming majority of what I do is developing, not testing. Um, Cause the testing is the street fight, right? Like this is it. Yeah, this is, we, we're going to do it. Right. Um, so where you fall in those two, like, I know some trial decoys who are, who are great and, and absolutely, if I need a dog tested, they're who I'm sending them to, but I wouldn't fucking let them anywhere near my young dog. <laughs> make a break a dog, right? Yeah, totally. Well, and they're going to test. They're not going to, they're not going to make, they're only going to attempt to break. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a role for that. Absolutely. But that role is for when I've decided like as the development decoy, like, Hey, he's, he's good. He's ready to go. Let's, let's put him out. What about, um, decoying your own dogs? Like, um, a lot of people do that, right? Yeah. I do it myself. Right? I'm not going like, to, mm -hmm. I, I do. I muck around. We just hear muck around for our mouths. Mm -hmm. Um, but is it, can we negative, have a negative effect on what we do? Yeah, for sure. So like decoying your own dog, there's a point of diminishing return. And where that point of diminishing return is, is different depending on the dog and the person. And it's not just a dog thing and it's not just a person thing. It's the combination of the two. So um, if you're developing a dog in prey and it is very, um, uh, you know, it's very uh, uh, like you're working with the dog, right? If, if it's a very developmental, it's very appetitive to the dog, like everything's going well and you're just teaching skills, then there's no risk, right? But but yeah. you can't finish your own dog. You, yeah, you 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 can't put the amount of pressure on a dog and teach the dog how to overcome that pressure, how to turn off that pressure, and that pressure come from you. Um, then you start introducing different levels of risk. So for some dogs, depending on how and why they bite, the point that you should not decoy for them might be like my own dog, for example, like I did like a lot of his development on myself. And if I put on a suit, he'll happily bite me. It's fine. Right. Like we're playing a game together. It's no different from me wearing a tug, but he stays very much in prey and never goes into a fight. And, and I need that of him. 
and times when I have like pushed him to try and like, he doesn't grip as he doesn't bite me anywhere near as hard as he bites someone else in a suit. And so, you know, like the times that I've pushed him to push, to bite properly, it stresses him badly because he's like, this is not like, I don't want to fight you. Right. Like I'll play the tugging biting game, but I don't want to fight. So you hit that point of diminishing return um, with some dogs. So with my own dog, that was probably like two years old, right? Where I'm like, uh, there's no, I can't get any more from this, right? He now bites, he's been taught and developed to bite with real aggression. He wants to fucking hurt who he's biting and, but he doesn't want to do that to me. So there's no value in doing that with him anymore. Some dogs that's eight weeks old, you know, like some dogs are immediately like, Hey, like this is real for me. And so then you, you get a cause conflict in the relationship, but even for the dogs that like just doing scenario based stuff, uh, one of the things that I find myself often encouraging people saying like, Hey, I know you did all the development and I know that's all sweet. And I'm not saying don't decoy your own dog, but you're hitting the point now where you're showing the dog too many pictures that result in you getting bitten. And so like there's certain exercises like the object guard and stuff like that, which are like, you're teaching the dog to guard shit from you and to bite you. Right. <laughs> And, and, and so there's been plenty of cases of sort of, um, people who are very good dog trainers, but have come into that biting sports world and not understood that. And so even though you're totally working your dog in prey and there's no pressure on the dog and you're just playing tug, you are rehearsing solving problems via biting the handler. And so there, as I say, there, there becomes a point where it just doesn't, it, it there's more cons and pros. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, like that's the, that's it. Like there's probably no risk in developing your own dog, but there comes a day where you go, I've got what I can get. It's time to bring in outside eyes. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's for sure necessary in, in developing a dog. Like I have a close relationship with a good friend of mine, Cole, who's easily the best decoy in Australia without a doubt. Um, and like he will finish my dogs cause I can't finish them. He has a higher skill set than me for sure. But even if, even if I were a better decoy than him, which I'm not, but even if I were, I would still require him or someone like him to finish the dogs because someone has to be the real boogeyman. Whereas yeah. like my dogs who I'm developing and have done all the work and I don't handle and I just am the decoy for, they'll never really see me as the boogeyman. Right. So yeah. I need someone else to, to fill that role. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and mate, I just want to um, give you a bit of a plug there. Um, unfortunately, I can't make it to your next one. Oh, uh, um, yeah, you're going to come along, yeah. I, I'd love to, man, but you don't want my kids around. They, they'll drive everyone nuts. Um, but you're running decoy workshops there and yeah. like free decoy workshops at the moment, mate. Like, I, that's awesome. Yeah. Mate, I, so the game I play is called PSA, uh, Protection Sports Association. It's America's yeah. answer to ring sports. That's my next question. <laughs> yeah. So I've been banging my head against a wall trying to get that going in Australia for about um, six or seven years. And we're getting going. It, it's taking off. And, and I realized I was doing a couple of things incorrectly. First of all, I was trying to recruit people from other sports and that was probably not the wisest thing. They're already doing their thing. Um, but the main thing I realized the barrier to entry is, well, PSA, the barrier to entry is the nerve of the dog. You can use any kind of dog. You don't need any pedigree. You can use any whatever, but it's fucking hard, right? There's a lot of pressure. And so the dog has to be strong. So there's that as an issue, but, um, we don't have that many decoys. So you get all these people who are really into it and are like, fuck yeah, Pat, I'm on board. I want to play this game. Who can help me develop my dog? And I'm like, no one. Oh, no one. There's no one around. So me and Cole both decided um, at the end of last year when we had a trial and uh, he wanted to trial 
but me, him, and one other or two other are the only certified decoys in the country for that game. And so I ended up like there's three bite scenarios and, uh, jazz who I work with, she did the, the carjacking, which is like the hidden sleeve bite. And then I had to do the handler attack and the courage test. Like I had to be running in between because it just, it was, I was the only one. So if I do it, cause Cole's the other one that could do it. And so he yeah. wanted to show his dog. So that's when the two of us got together and we're like, fuck man, we're going to teach more people this. And that's what we realized. That's the real barrier to entry is people who don't know how to do it. And there aren't schools in Australia to teach that. Like there isn't a place you can go um, like other places in the world where there's courses on it and stuff like that. Like it's really hard to find someone who's willing to teach you and, you know, access to those people and whatever. So that's when me and Cole decided, well, we can't keep complaining. There's no decoys when we have the capacity to train more and we haven't. So we've set up these days. We do it every month, just one Sunday a month. We get everyone together. Um, and we're working through sort of a program on, um, developing people to be more than like more than their actual skill set on doing it because, you know, one day is not that much. Right. But yeah. what we're really teaching people is the, the thought patterns around doing it and, and the process around doing it and showing people, because one of the things that developing a dog is boring as shit. Like it's so boring that there's no video of it because it's so boring. When, if you watch someone doing a session with a young dog, you'd say, what, like, it's a rag and you know, like there's nothing. Right. And so there's no content to teach people how to do that. But what there is plenty of content is Finnish dogs doing crazy shit. And so when people get online and they're like, okay, what's this bite sports about? How do I become a decoy? All you see is monster dogs slamming into people and getting beaten with the stick and big drives and whatever. Right. And then people go out and do that to five month old puppies and it's the end of them. And so that's why we're like, okay, we're going to take the time. We're going to actually, educate as many people as we can slowly and thoughtfully about how to actually develop a dog um, and, and, and develop themselves in order to become a trial decoy so we can get more trial decoys and we can help grow this game. Uh, but, mate, that, that's awesome. Like you're putting, you're investing back into your sport, right? Yeah, exactly. And PSA, like we just touched on it. So effectively, is it three different bite scenarios or? Yeah. So PSA is this really fun game, right? So it's only 20 years old. So it's one of the more modern bite sports in the world and uh the way it works is there's a pdc which is the protection dogs tibia it's a very basic uh obedience test and three bite scenarios just a, a a carjacking it's a carjacking because it needs that's a safe way to do a hidden sleeve bite that's the only reason um and then a handler attack and a courage test then you go on to your level one now the obedience is much more difficult and and the big difference about psa is it's always like what we call like uh, contested obedience. So there's always a decoy on the field. So in the level one, he's just sitting in a chair, but by the time you're in the level two, throughout the entire obedience routine, you've got two decoys like harassing you. And then, um, the way it works is the game basically gets less and less structure, the more you move into it. So that by the time you're in the level three, there actually really is like there's no scenarios that you know of. You don't know how many times your dog's going to bite. You don't know how it's going to go down. It's totally that the, the judge has a list of criteria by which you're going to be assessed, but how that assessment is going to go down is totally up to them. So they create scenarios. Yep. So the beauty of it is it's really fun because you don't know how it's going to go down. So, um, you know, like in some sports, you know, like in IGP, for example, which is the German, like that's the sort of Schutzen, the original sort of sport. Yep. You, you know, your changes of position, sit down, stand are going to happen with you facing the dog. The dog's going to be on the field. He's going to do his changes of position. In PSA, you don't know how the fuck that's going to happen. You know, you're going to be told yeah, right. to do it, but you don't you know, know how that's going to go down. 
And, you know, that could look like at one point in a trial, I saw there was a door placed on the ground. You had to heal your dog up to the door, put it on a down. And then four decoys picked up that door and were walking around holding your dog on this platform. And you're in a hidden position. So the dog can't see you and you have to be calling out your changes of position. Right. Yeah, so right. like, yeah. So it's the generalization of all the skills. So like IGP is, you know, it's a beautiful sport, but it's like, they have um, like the blind search, right? So the blind search yeah. in the bite work, there's six blinds. The dog has to search each one and then the, the help is in the last one. Yeah, it's the and same it's, every time. Yeah. And it's not a bite. It's a bark and hold. So what you're demonstrating is, look, my dog will search these areas. He knows full well the guy's down there, but he'll search. Yeah. And he's not going in with like un, uncontrolled aggression. He's going in there to bark and hold. And then there'll be a bite after that. So it's like a demonstration because – yeah, Schutzen was originally a breed test, right? So it's like, demonstrate your dog has the capacity to do that. Cool. Okay. Now PSA is like, okay, but really search something. Like really search. So now there's like multiple cars on the field and there's a decoy in one of them. And the judge will say, okay, there's a decoy in one of those cars. Send your dog to a, a guard on that decoy. And so it's the same shit, but it's the like actual application of it. It's the generalization. Right. It's close to real world scenarios. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, like that's what we have to be careful of because it's not real. It's a game and like, you know, all that shit. Like I don't really, I'm not into protection dogs. Like my dog, you know, I don't, I don't need a dog to protect me. It's a game. Like we're playing a game. Yeah. Um, but as you say, there's scenarios that are just fun to play out and they're fucking hard. And, and the beauty of uh, PSA is that it's a handler's sport because, because it has to go down you know, in a way that you won't know, there's surprise scenarios that there's, even though there's like all these criteria, like your dog has to be able to demonstrate, you have to teach your dog so much stuff that you'll never be, um, assessed against in order to have control mechanisms to get the dog through the scenarios. Right. Yeah, so like, cool. yeah. And you've got to think like it's, you're playing chess on the field where you have to be thinking like, okay, like in what are the controls I have to get through this? Like, where are my dog's strengths? Where are my dog's weaknesses? How am I going to manage my dog through this scenario in order that he doesn't bite that decoy without permission? And in order that he does bite the one that I want him to bite. And, and yeah. like, if you ever look at any of the higher level trials, it's carnage on the field. Like to the point where you just think, fuck, how is it like, what is happening here? Like, and, and how could anybody control the dog in that level of arousal? That's why I love it. It's fun like that. And how, where where can we go? Or, um, like where, what can we watch either online or where can we yeah, physically so go you, to watch one yeah, of these Yeah, if you check out the PSA, uh, it's uh, PSA I think it is, PSA-K9.org. Um, and there's trial footage and all kinds of stuff on there. There, there isn't, you know, uh, as like we were discussing earlier, there isn't a good uh, place because everybody uses social media and social media yeah. is falling apart and, videos get to let, you know, so like there isn't a central hub beyond the PSA website. Um, but yeah, it's protection sports association, um, PSAK9.org and that'll have videos and the rules and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it has the clubs there, there's, there's like four clubs in Australia at the moment. Um, a couple yeah. here in Sydney, one in Queensland and one down in Leeton. Um, and we're, we're growing where it's, a it's, I think more and more people are realizing how fun it is. Right. And it sounds and, pretty cool. I want to get out and watch it myself. Yeah, it's good. Uh, the, the, the only issue with PSA is like as a, as a spectator sport is if you're not actually there to see the, the judges handle a meeting to tell them how it's going to go down. Downstand. You have no idea what you're watching. Like when you're <laughs> watching it, you're like, like even I, 
as like a person who really knows the sport, if you're watching a level three scenario, you have no idea how that's going to go down. And you don't know whether the dog's doing good or bad because you don't know what the dog's meant to be doing. Um, So that's the problem as a spectator sport. If it's not live, it's not great. Yeah. Very good. And you mentioned there about sending dogs out. Um, I was having a conversation with someone during the week um, about um, like sending dogs in directionals left and right. You're obviously very experienced with an e-collar. How, how would, obviously you teach your dogs directions, right? So getting out left, casting them out, right? How do you go about enhancing that with an e-collar? Yeah, that's a tricky one, right? So directionals for us are kind of different than they would be for you. So uh, directionals for us are the choice between two things or multiple things rather than going a particular way. Now, like the way that we teach that, like it can be enhanced with the e-collar, but for the most part, the way that I teach directionals is a little bit unorthodox um, is that we start at 180 degrees, you know, like we teach go that way, go that way, go to the things. But then eventually they have to come in together to the point where there is some discrimination happening. And the way that I teach that, it's the way I was taught, is uh, I do it on a back tie or a flex pole, you know, and I use two balls. And the thing is like a a ball that is identical to to another that is six inches further away from the dog than the other one is not discernible by the dog at the five meters you have from the dog. And so well, the way I do teacher directionals is like, I, I have my hand signals, which I develop, you know, really broadly, but when there is conflict where the, where I tell the dog, Hey, I need you to do this, get this one. But the dog's like, no, I'd rather get that one. That one's better. I, that one's not actually available. And what I would yeah. do in that moment is like, let the dog try as hard as he wants. And the, the way that I need a dog to feel about that because of the, draw that will come later in the type of training or or like the real world scenario is that I don't want the dog ever to think I'm telling you, you must get that one. What I want the dog to think is I know something you don't, I'm telling you that the other one is not available to you. Right. And that you, you, you can try as hard as you want. I'll let you, I'm not mad at you. You can fucking pull into that back tie forever. You ain't going to break it and you ain't going to get that ball. But the moment you change your mind and get the other one, I'm going to reward you. And then if you actually wanted that other one, you got to bring that ball that I made you get to me. Then I'll let you get the other one anyway, right? So there's no conflict. Well, I want to bring that down to zero. But the way that I enhance that with the e-collar is in the dog's attempts to be getting the wrong thing, I might be stimming at a really low level. Not that would motivate the dog off the ball, but that would make trying to get the ball somewhat uncomfortable. The moment he changes his mind, I turn that pressure off. And when, what I'm doing when I do that is that I'm programming that dog to understand this e-collar's guidance to the right track, right? And that's what I want the dog to think of it as. Like, I don't want the dog to be like a, like, or, or else, right? I want him to be like, I want you to switch it off, right? I'll get back into avoidance. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I want the dog to think like this e-collar is telling me something. Um, And so that's what I would do in, if, and when the dog is attempting to get the wrong thing, I would be nagging it. Not telling it, but just saying like, that's not right, man. Like yeah. that's, you're on the wrong track. Tap, tap, like you would yeah. on a lead. Tap, tap, exactly. nag anyway. Exactly. And the moment he changes his mind, he's straight into the right thing. No, it turns off. And so now he's doubly motivated. First, he that's Nipopo, right? So he turns yeah. off the negative reinforcement of trying to get the wrong thing. He t- points that at the right thing. That immediately turns off the pressure. And then in doing that, he gets reinforced for getting it. Brings the ball back. Yeah. We play the game, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I actually having this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago and um they asked about how i would do it so i got no idea but i'm talking to pat stewart in a few weeks i'll i'll ask him and i i assumed something similar to that yeah. um i do similar stuff with my own dogs there's a couple of things i do but not directionals but obviously like we're casting dogs out and 
we start in a small space and then a bigger space and bigger space. We've got people that kind of want to fast track a bit. Yeah. And um, the idea of collars and even taking on principles from the working dog and pet dog world into stock dogs is really, I see the world's colliding a lot yeah, now and thirst for information. Like it's just brutal. Yeah, heaps of overlap. Matt, I think the, the key thing with directionals, but also many of the behaviors that I teach dogs is like, the type of dog I like is not afraid to come up the line, right? Like I like really dangerous dogs. I like really spicy, impulsive dogs that I really enjoy the company of those dogs, but I don't ever want them to come up the line. <laughs> I don't want that <laughs> to happen, but I like a dog who has that within him. So as a result, the way that I train, I try and reduce as much conflict as to zero where I can. Right. And so very rarely am I ever saying to the dog, Hey, you have to do this. What I want to tell the dog is like, hey, man, I know something you don't, right? Now I'm telling you, it looks like there's two options, but I'm telling you there's only one. And if he doesn't believe me, I let him find out. Like I let him try as hard as he wants. And that's what, that's the role of the back tie. He doesn't look and say, I'm holding the leash. Like I'm like, mate, I'm not involved in this. Now he probably, yeah, exactly. Right. But like, hopefully he doesn't have the cognition to realize like, oh, this motherfucker set this whole scenario up and does it like, you know what I mean? He doesn't have that. Yeah. But what I want is like a really supportive relationship with the dog where he looks at me and says, this guy has good advice rather than this guy is forcing me to do shit I don't want to do. And teaching directionals as well as many, many others behaviors in a similar way, I find not only has a much more lasting effect on the behavior, it actually works when you want it to work. But also, like, it's just a nicer way to train with a dog and it ends up in a better, like, less combative, safer relationship with a dangerous dog. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a massive toolbox there, obviously, right? You've got so many tools, techniques there. And, like, talking about one there, and this is a question for myself rather than anyone else, but um, you've got a, such a wide range of training techniques. How do you go about keeping yourself grounded and not going down a particular path and then pushing that and then do you or sometimes does that happen and you go wait a minute yeah, yeah. Nah, i can see this happening this dog here and let's go back this way you know whether it's the the, yeah. the force free or the nepo power whatever it may be yeah um i train with other people as much as possible that's the main thing yeah. right and i think that it gets really easy to just sort of put the blinkers on we had a guy come to my club at the end of last year a guy from india actually who's an incredible decoy and um he was working all the dogs in my club and it was like, it was like watching someone else bang your girlfriend. He was doing such a good job. And I was like, Oh, like, and he had all these tricks that I didn't have and was achieving all these things that I didn't achieve. And so I think, and I was, it was great. Like I loved it. Right. Because, it, and he wasn't doing anything necessarily that I didn't know how to do, but it was just that you get into a rut, you do the same shit with the same dogs all the time. I know yeah. this works. I know the techniques. And so, I think it's really important. That was definitely a, a strong lesson for me is, you know, like training with multiple people and seeing fresh eyes on different things. And also just being really open to the idea that someone else knows more. And, and like, that's like, <laughs> in my case, it's very often true, right? Like I, I, I take the assumption that whoever I'm training with is actually a much better trainer than me. It was very often is the case, thankfully. And I want to sort of explore what, what do you know? Show me how you do it. Right. Like I'm inter I'm genuinely interested in how you do it. And then that just goes something that's, if it is better than mine, it goes into the Rolodex of things that I can choose. And if not, then it goes into the Rolodex of like, okay, given a sort of set of situations, maybe it is what I do, or maybe now I know for sure what I'm not going to do. You know, like all of those different yeah. things. But I think, um, 
I enjoy very much trading with other people, especially if I can get my, you know, keep myself around people who are better than me. Um, and, and really like I look at other people's trainings, not to find what I don't like about it or anything like that, but genuinely to figure out like how effective is this and is it replicatable by me and others. And be open-minded, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, I've mentioned on this program before, the one of the best um, learning curves I ever had was by a 15-year-old fella. He said to me, is it true if you think you're the smartest person in your room, you're in the wrong room? And I just went, wow, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like That just stuck with me. Like, I heard that about a year ago now. Yeah. Uh, one of these young fellas down at Rough Track, and I was just like, how come a 15-year-old boy that's kind of off the rails – <laughs> how, 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 how did you just have that influence on me? Yeah, yeah. Right. And just being, like you said there, just being open minded to the people around you. Yeah, for sure. And the, the beauty of dog training, mate, is the results speak for themselves. Like, it, it, like, it, dog training is, I think, more than anything else I've ever experienced in meritocracy. If you can get your dog out and it works, people want to know how the fuck you did that. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Right. And so, absolutely. Like, that that's the way it goes. So the proof is in the pudding. And when you see someone pulling something off, especially something I enjoy quite a lot is like looking at someone's training and going like, I don't, uh, this isn't gelling. Like I'm not into this, but watching their dog be phenomenal. And then I'm like, okay, but I have to get to the bottom of this because this doesn't look intuitive to me. Like I, I don't expect, like, I don't expect to see the results that I'm seeing from this training. So I am missing something here. I have to figure that out. And, you know, it's harder and harder to, to put myself in those situations. But when I do, I love it. It's, it's great. Absolutely. Mate, before we, as we start to wind down, we, you mentioned the canine paradigm before you mm. and your co-host there, Glenn Cook. Mm-hmm. Mate, what's, um, obviously you got a stack of um, episodes out there now. I learned something from everyone. What, how'd that come about? Mate. I think we've been going about five years now. Um, we're 240, I think, something episodes in, something like that. 250 um, something, mate. 250, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so the last gl- two, absolutely. Well, I, I'm ended yeah, to I'm here, like them. So connected. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, mate, so what happened, Glenn? Uh, There's a guy, Josh Moran. He had a he had a podcast that he hasn't done in a long time, but uh, Glenn was on it, and I think it just gave him the bug. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so he hit me up and was like, Hey, do I do a podcast? So I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I can talk. Right. Like why not? Um, and we had a couple of false starts. It took us a while to get going. And then we eventually did. And I think we were lucky in that we were at the right place at the right time. Like it's a very saturated market now, but it wasn't five years ago. And, yeah. and I think as well, like, uh, the conversational, like it's just us, talking shit to each other really and we get guests on all the time but it's just us sort of talking and i think we were at the right place i think that if i started that today we would know we wouldn't be able to develop an audience like we have because i think there's plenty of choice already available and um but we did and so we're super lucky we just i think glenn posted yesterday day before something like that that we've just had two million um listens or something like that and so uh, it's been incredible. It's completely changed my life. And, and, you know, I've gone from being a person in my area and very much within my niche, who's known and is understood to be capable of what I do to now being uh, a person who has thousands of people around the world who are looking to learn from me. 
Um, and so, you know, it, it's changed my life. It's changed me from being just a local dog trainer into a person who travels the world teaching people and has incredible opportunities, um, you know, to learn from others in the process of doing that. So yeah, it's, um, it's a spin out. It still blows my mind that it, it was as, as successful as it has been. I always feel bad for like anybody who would be trying to start as a listener now, because there's so many in jokes and there's so many like, you know, they're like, we, we have such fragrant re- disregard for if it was someone's first time listening to the show. Yeah, like that's it, the negative feedback that I get. But beyond that, it's it's, it's kind of like watching Home and Away. you got to like go yeah. back the episodes to kind of, you, exactly. you're kind of on the same storyline, but you got to go back a bit. Exactly. That That's actually a very good parallel. Oh, I love Home and Away, mate. Alf's <laughs> like, he's an idol of mine. Uh, but congratulations there on that, mate. Like, it, it's, it. you know, it's great. You've had all your listens there. And like you said, like, you, you said you can't believe, but I'm sure like you're teaching people every day. You only get out what you put in and you put a heap of effort into it yeah. and you're just reaping the benefits of that. So Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's been, it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy doing it. And, and I mean, beyond the um, success that's come of it, uh, I've had some pretty incredible feedback, like some really personal, like, um, cause we talk about a lot beyond just dogs, you know, and I tell a lot of like personal anecdotes and I, I'm a really lucky person in that I had kind of a wild history, but am very unaffected by it sort of mentally. And, you know, I've had a lot of feedback from people, other people in the army and veterans all around the world and stuff saying that that's helped them a lot. And there's that's just been cool. a lot of really, uh, positive feedback beyond, making people better at training dogs for free. There's been a lot of, you know, maybe improving the quality of life for some people, which makes me really happy. A hundred percent, man. Even away from if people think training dogs is just about having a dog there, it's not, it's about personal experiences and a lot of, a lot of the psychology behind dogs. It's no different to what we're going through every day. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Experiences, what we've, how we've dealt with them and, and working that like, so anyways, we could go on for hours and hours about that, but anyways, mate, was there a question tonight um, that um, you would pick for that will strike your interest? There's a couple there from Nikki and Shane, uh, and I'll win a bag of enduro high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Uh, Nikki was asking about puppy development, right? She was. That'd be the one I'd say. She could. She'd Nikki, be the winner. Congratulations, Nikki. I've got your details. So, bag of enduro coming your way. Um, obviously, I understand you're a you know our mate at Enduro Paul. So there's Paul. a bag coming your way as well, mate. Oh, amazing. So thanks for jumping on tonight. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. That's all right. I'm not going to let you go that easy. Laura isn't here. However, okay. I'm going to ask Laura's question. All right. Okay. And it is, um, if you had the opt- if you had to choose between fighting 20 horses the size of ducks or one duck the size of a horse, which would you pick and why? Um... I go twenty horses, the the size of ducks. Uh, it just seems more manageable. More manageable. Yeah, love you. <laughs> love the answer, like mate. I, I could handle that a lot. Yeah, I think one giant duck would freak me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, Remy could have lots to eat as well, there, mate. So, mate, if he was involved, it'd be all over in a heartbeat. I wouldn't. I'd do nothing. I'd be a spectator no, in the fight. There you go. Mate, thank you very much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. Uh, To everyone listening back, thank you. And please remember we learn every day and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate.